I am not used to being lost or feeling lost. Usually I know where I am. I have a good sense of direction. I pay attention to the landmarks. I know my way. But there are different ways to be lost. And it isn't always geographical or directional. For example, this summer, as Lois was navigating her at first terrifying medical diagnosis and later on her slow-motion mystery, I felt lost. I was reminded that you cannot know what you don't yet know. You cannot find your way without some kind of directional signs. When you find yourself off the regular road, you probably need help, even when you sometimes don't know what that help looks like or how to ask for it. And you can't be expected to already know where you're going when you can't even figure out where you are. I felt lost, and I knew I felt that way, but even so, I was pretty sure I was doing pretty well, all things considered, until I had a particular straw that broke the camel's back moment during our third trip to the Cleveland Clinic. And ironically, the flood of existential lostness came when I had a momentary experience of being actually physically, geographically lost. We went to Cleveland three times for medical appointments, and each time we had a different specific destination on the clinic campus, different drop-off and parking arrangements, different buildings to navigate, and different doctors to see. If you haven't been there, let me tell you that the Cleveland Clinic is like a small city. Each medical specialty has its own building on a different block. The first visit, when we thought we were dealing with metastatic cancer in her spine, we were at the Taussig Cancer Center. The next time when we went for a lymph node and lung biopsies, we were at the Miller Pavilion that houses the pulmonology center. And the third time when we were there to consult with sarcoidosis and neurosarcoidosis specialists, the appointments were at the cryo building where the sarcoidosis center is located. Now, the first time we went to the clinic, we took a shuttle from the hotel to the cancer center. That was the easiest drop-off since it was only two blocks from the hotel. We just had to get out of the shuttle and walk into the building. After the appointments that day, I walked back the two blocks to the hotel parking lot, got the car, quickly returned to pick up Lois. The next two visits went a little differently. We came directly into town, so once we found where we were going, I dropped Lois off, got her situated on a bench or in a wheelchair, and then hustled back to the parking, or drove to the nearest parking garage and hustled back to accompany her to her appointments. When the appointments were done, it was the reverse. She sat in the pickup area. I hurried to get the car and came back to pick her up. At the third visit, the parking garage was conveniently located just one block from the building. No big deal to do the back and forth of dropping off and parking, Took only a little time to walk from the garage to the office building. But that day, for some reason, even though we finally, after months, got a definitive diagnosis, that day felt especially demanding. And afterwards, I hurried to get the car because I knew Lois was tired. And I guess I, too, was more tired and stressed out than I realized. Because once I got the car 
and drove down level after level after level to come to the exit of the parking garage. As I exited to return to pick her up, I got in the wrong lane, and coming out of the garage, rather than going right, I had to go left. You've been there. And suddenly, even though I was only one block away to begin with, I was going in the wrong direction, and one block became two, and then three. And not only that, but there was a series of one-way streets that didn't go the way I wanted to go. And not only that, but Google Maps wouldn't load on my phone. And not only that, but the traffic was heavy and moving quickly, and I missed one more of the opportunities to get into the correct lane and make the correct turn, and I realized all of a sudden that I was lost. One block away from my destination to begin with, the place I wanted to go within view in that initial moment as I came out of the parking garage, and in the next moment I was going who knows where. I think I would have been fine if any of those factors had been eliminated from the equation. If I had just ignored Google Maps and paid attention to my instincts instead of trying to get her to work. Or if the traffic had been light instead of heavy. And most of all, if I had been in a good frame of mind instead of suddenly feeling as if the load of weeks of worry and uncertainty and lostness was coming down on my head all at once. Now, truth be told, I really wasn't all that lost. But I tell you what, it sure felt like it. And as annoying as the Google Maps voice is when she tells you to go the way you're pretty sure you're not supposed to go, or when what she says doesn't actually match what's on the screen on the phone, when she won't even talk to you, and you feel urgency without answers, it is a very lonely and lost feeling. wasn't particularly my fault, except maybe for the part of getting into the wrong exit lane coming out of the parking garage. Aside from that one small error, none of this, all the things that had happened for several months, all the things that led to the feeling of being lost, none of that was really my fault, and yet there I was. And I don't just mean there I was on the wrong street. But there I was, there we were, on a path, on a journey that was taking us, and is still taking us, places we have not been before, and certainly places we don't expect or want to go. You can be lost almost before you know it. Lost by going around a corner that you never even saw coming, and then almost before you know it, there's another turn and another and another. 
And at each turn, it takes you farther from your intended destination, farther from the familiar, farther indeed even from home. And these kind of questions rattle around in your head. Who is looking for us? Who is willing and can be trusted to answer our questions? Who will help us? Who really is keeping us in their thoughts? And not just saying that when our paths happen to cross, because, well, that's what you say when you see someone who has been struggling. You've been in my thoughts. But who is really keeping us in their thoughts? We were feeling pretty lost for a pretty long stretch of time, and not because we had deliberately wandered off, not because we were somehow guilty of some inattentiveness, but because we were lost. We were disoriented just because. And it's important to name that just because, to counteract the common narrative that those who are lost somehow got themselves lost or deliberately wandered off or deserve to be lost or are somehow lesser because they are lost. Sure, people wander away, sometimes even walk away with intention, but sometimes it's just because. And that kind of feeling, being lost just because, is especially frustrating. In the car that day, circling around the Cleveland Clinic campus trying to find my way back, I had some choice words for parking garages, one-way streets, Google Maps, local drivers, and Cleveland in general. It started with, you've got to be kidding. You have got to be kidding, and went downhill from there. I did not add God to the list, or life, or fate, or anyone or anything else, probably just because I didn't get that far down my list. But I did recognize that it really wasn't about one-way streets. It was about being in unfamiliar territory in terms of health, future possibilities, relationships, expectations, and hopes. It was being lost in the uncertain and the unfamiliar, and being lost in the uncertain and unfamiliar is a kind of misery. It is bad. That doesn't mean, however, that those who are lost are bad, even though, as I already said, we may have a tendency to blame the lost for their lostness. And when we do that, you know why we do that, right? It's likely because it makes most of us feel better to think that those who are lost did it to themselves. Because if that's true, then it means that we aren't responsible for their lostness. And maybe more importantly to us, it suggests that we ourselves won't get lost. Because we would never do the wrong thing, wander off, would we? And that's how people get lost, right? No, not necessarily. Instead, what if lostness is just as likely a circumstance as it is a choice? What if lostness, spiritual, emotional, mental, relational lostness is many times, maybe even most times, just something that happens? And if so, what does it mean for those who are lost and for those who are not? What does it mean for the task, the call, to go looking for the lost? Can the looking, the searching, the seeking be done with no judgment and only love? 
Can the lost and found responsibility be lodged with the owner of the sheep then, instead of with the lost sheep themselves? With the woman sweeping at her house instead of with the lost coin? You noticed, right, that the parable has the sheep owner identified as the one who does the losing. The woman is the one who does the losing. So it makes sense that they are each the ones who also do the looking. The thing I also want to be clear about is how important it is to pay attention to not only the task of looking, but the tone and the tenor of the looking, the searching, the seeking. As Karen alluded to in the children's story, it has to be done with kindness. That is to say, the searching, the seeking, the reclaiming, the covering, recovering is most appropriately done without blame, without judgment, without a roll of the eyes, without an attitude of superiority, is most appropriately done with compassion, with arms open, with thoughtfulness, with identification between the 99 and the 1, and when the searching turns into finding, it is most appropriate to respond with gratitude. I know that Luke has Jesus make the comparison of the lost sheep who was found to the sinner who repents, so our mind goes in the direction of lodging responsibility and blame for the lostness upon the sheep, upon the coin, but look closely and notice that there is no blame in this text. There is no blame. There's only gratitude when the relationship is restored when the lost is found. So what do we make of the idea of repentance? Repentance isn't just about making a guilt offering, about making up for something bad. Repentance is quite literally turning back, turning back toward home, turning back toward restored relationship, turning back toward wholeness. And I would ask us, is this turning back only the work of those who are lost? Or is this turning back something for which the whole community is responsible? That is, we all turn back toward each other. Amy Jill Levine in her book, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, digs through all of this as she reflects on this story, noting as I have that at issue isn't the direction or responsibility of blame, but the recognition that for the owner of the sheep, what matters is noticing and caring about the incompleteness when someone or something is lost. He notices, she writes, the single missing sheep among the 99 in the wilderness. For him, the missing sheep, whether it is one of a hundred or one of a million, makes the flock incomplete. She continues, and so if he can realize that one of his hundred has gone missing, do we know what or whom we have lost? When was the last time we took stock or counted up who was present rather than simply counting on their presence? Will we take responsibility for the losing, and what effort will we make to find it or him or her again? Every now and then in church, someone will say to me, I'm back. Did you notice I was gone? 
Sometimes I have lost track of time and I haven't noticed someone missing from worship for a week or two or three. Their return reminds me that they were gone. Often, however, I have noticed someone missing. They weren't in their regular spot in the pew. And I can honestly say, yes, and I wondered where you were. But usually the question, as well as that answer, makes me a bit uncomfortable because even though I wondered where they were, I probably didn't act on that wondering. I didn't go looking, certainly not as a matter of urgency. So I rationalized it, as we all do. I sang to myself that I didn't want to pry into other people's lives or it really wasn't all that long, or it's as much their responsibility as it is mine to track each other's coming and going. But the truth is, we all want to be noticed, and especially if we're missing. We all want someone to come looking, someone to care and ask, where have you been? So think about your flock, your collection. Who has been lost, misplaced, or unnoticed? And what are you going to do about it? What about the person you loved and you had a misunderstanding and you just let the relationship slide away? What about the classmate or relative or colleague who frustrates you And so you've stopped investing much of anything in the interactions, and you can see the connection becoming more and more tenuous. What about the sibling you grew up with and put up with, and now you have to decide whether or not to be close? What about the familiar face at the coffee shop? You don't know his name, you don't know her story, but that person has in their own small way become part of your routine, and now you realize that they've moved out of you. What happened to any of these people? Do they need you to find them? Do you have a little bit of curiosity? Do you have a measure of compassion? The searching for what is lost is the expression of caring. What is lost may not be found, but if we are living in the spirit of Jesus, the lost should be sought. So here's an invitation of spirit, of faith, of faithfulness. Seek what is lost. Seek the one who is lost to you, to us. Notice, remember, seek, search, restore, reclaim, rejoice. Amen.